Good morning, friends. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Hope those of you who weren't here last week had a good Thanksgiving. I see that many of you back with us. We believe sincerely here at CBC because it's biblical that God is trustworthy and he is to be hoped in. He is to be rested in, even in the midst of the greatest pain and suffering and despair that we ever experience. We believe with all of our hearts that he's good even in the midst of hardship. And so we're going to, in God's kindness, get to consider some of those very deep, very good themes today from God's Word. Just a very quick uh, plug here for a good resource. This is the best time to do this before we pray and look to the Bible. We're going to be considering despair today uh, and depression, um, the kind of anguish of the soul. Probably the, the best book, at least in my opinion, that I've read on this in some time, is this little book that I hold in my hand right here called Spurgeon's Sorrows. I have recommended this before. Uh, but this is by Zach Eswine, who is a Presbyterian pastor in Missouri. Uh, but this is a wonderful book that is comprised of both Zach's writing and also many, many quotes from Charles Spurgeon's preaching ministry. It is excellent. Many people will know that Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, lived in England. Uh, he was in his heyday preaching in the latter part of the 19th century. Uh, but he struggled greatly with despair and depression and knew what it was like uh, to suffer this way. And so his thoughts on it are quite poignant and eloquent. I could not commend this more to you. It's very readable. Uh, it's short. You could read it uh, for some of you in a sitting or two, probably. It's a page turn. It's very good. If you have any questions about it, talk to me after the service. So now that I've done that, let's turn our attention now to God's Word. And before we do that, as we always do, let's go to the Lord and ask Him for His help before we look to the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for, most of all, your Son, for His life and His death and His resurrection in the place of ruined sinners like us. We pray now that as we look to your word, that you would show us yourself within your word, that you would show us ourselves and our struggle within your word, and that you would show us our Savior, even from a passage that is so replete with lament. Father, we pray that you would show yourself to be mighty in our lives this morning as we look to your word, and we pray that you would show yourself to be mighty in our lives in an ongoing way especially when we encounter hard things. We pray that you would work deep, unshakable faith and confidence in you, in us. And we pray for you to do that work. Use your word now to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, the holiday season is now in full swing. We've gotten past Thanksgiving, so we are in full-blown Christmas mode. You see this all over the place, as I do. This time of year that should be full of light and joy and happiness, even the culture thinks that, it's a light, bright, happy time of year, is often, in reality, full of darkness and full of sadness for many people. The holidays can be a very, very depressing time for us in this fallen world as we struggle uh, with many things in life. Maybe that's you this year. Maybe you've come here today and in the midst of all of the holiday season hoopla, you find yourself despairing or you find yourself just flat and gray. 
and you're not quite sure what's going on. But even if that's not you this year, I trust that most everyone in this room who's hearing the sound of my voice has known sorrow. I trust everyone in this room has known despair. I trust everyone in this room has known at least brief periods of what we might realistically call anguish of the soul. It's real. It's hard when we encounter seasons like that. I, for one, I don't know about you, but I rejoice in the fact that the Bible is far from silent on these things. The Bible is full of words and chapters about this very issue of despair and depression and anguish of the heart. And so we get in God's kindness to turn our attention to one of those portions of his word today. And so if you have your Bibles with you, uh, turn, turn them on or open them up to Psalm 88. Uh, we are in the middle of a relatively brief sermon series in the book of Psalms. This is the sixth of ten sermons in the Psalms for my portion of this. Ron is going to be preaching uh, in a couple of weeks, uh, another sermon from the Psalms as well. We'll finish up this series early next year, and then we'll be on to something else. But I pray that, as it has been for me, that the Psalms have been uh, nourishing to your heart and to your soul as we have gone through them. And now that you've had time to open your Bibles up to Psalm 88, let's look to God's Word together and let me read it for us. This is the Word of God. A Psalm. A psalm of the sons of Korah, to the choir master, according to Mehalath Leonah, a masculine of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your ways. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Thanks be to God for his word. His word, may it never be said of God's word that it's not real. It is. And praise be to his name for that truth. So I want to approach this passage 
uh, and preach this sermon in two sections. This is kind of a, an old school approach, the way guys used to do it two, three hundred years ago. They would preach a portion of the sermon on the text itself, and then they would also preach doctrines, truths from the text. And so that's going to be my approach today. We're going to take part one, the text, and walk through it together, and then I will have six points of doctrine for us, six truths for us to consider. So let's turn our eyes specifically to the passage and try to understand what the psalmist is saying to us, and then we will work from there. As we look to the heading, just more by way of information for you so that you can wrap your minds around this, you see in the inspired heading there that this is a psalm of the sons of Korah. Ron preached recently a psalm also of the sons of Korah. They would be descended from that man named Korah that we read about in Numbers 16. These men, these descendants of Korah, were of the tribe of Levi and would have worked uh, to facilitate worship in the tabernacle and the temple. You see those words, to the choir master, according to Mehalat Leonoth. These are certainly musical terms, it seems. That's what conventional wisdom would say, as this would have been sung, no doubt, uh, in the temple, in the tabernacle, amongst the congregation of Israel. But then we get to the last part of that heading, a masculine, which is again a musical term, of Heman the Ezraite. So this is the particular author. He would be one of uh, the sons of Korah. And the consensus is that this is the same man, Heman, that is mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 4. So he is an historical, real person mentioned in the record of Scripture. He is a contemporary of King Solomon. So he was alive during Solomon's reign, and he was commended in 1 Kings chapter 4 for his wisdom. Now, he was not as wise as Solomon. He's one of the four men mentioned, because Solomon, as you know, was wiser than any. And it's, he was wiser than these other four guys. So this cat must have known some stuff. He must have been a wise dude, if he's even being compared to Solomon in that way. And he is the author of the psalm. The next thing I want us to observe as we move into the, the text proper, where verse 1 begins for us, is that Heman, the Ezraite, was a man of faith. Heman was a man of faith. He trusted in the Lord. Put your eyes on verse 1. Look how he addresses God at the very beginning. From the jump, he says, O Lord, covenant name, Lord, my God, you are God of my salvation. You're my Savior. So I just want to point this out right away before we get into these really heavy words of despair. It is not as though this man just simply lacked faith. And that's why he wrote what he did. Because that could be an easy way to sort of dismiss this passage out of hand. It's like, well, yeah, this is just a man struggling, lacking faith, and therefore he wrote this. He trusts in the Lord, God of my salvation. You see that he prays earnestly to God. Just let's observe some things. Second part of verse one, after he's addressed the Lord, he says, I cry out day and night before you. I am earnest and sincere in coming to you, God. You are my savior, and I cry out to you day and night. Verse two, let my prayer come before you and hear me, incline your ear, to my pride. Like he is pleading with the Lord even in verse 2. If you put your eyes down on verse 9, after you see that his eyes have grown dim through sorrow, he's crying his eyes out. Every day, Heman says, every day, I call upon you, O Lord, and I spread out my hands to you. This is a posture of prayer. Right? I am coming to you in faith. And then again in verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you, in the morning, my prayer comes before you. So again, regularly am I coming to you in faith, 
in prayer, in reliance upon you. Every day, I'm praying to you not just at various points, but I'm coming in the morning. My troubles are on the front of my mind. I know that I can't change my circumstance, and so I'm going to waste no time. In the morning, I come to you, and I present my pleas to you. This is a man who, struggling as he might have been, was a man of faith. As I've already said, these words are not simply the words of a man who simply lacked faith. And to say that would be misguided and unhelpful. We would be robbed of the great riches and the great treasure of this psalm if we were to just say, well, these are only the words of a faithless person. It is precisely because these are the words of a man of faith that this psalm is so impactful. And it's so beautiful, honestly. That here is a man struggling mightily in the darkest seasons maybe of his life that we're going to see that he had perhaps just suffered a long time. But he continues to come to God in faith. He continues to present his pleas before the Lord. And as we considered together last week from Psalm 73, I don't feel the need to say hardly any of this again. But it's good for us to remember that there needs to be room in the church for language like this for genuine lament, for genuine sorrow, to be able to be voiced by the people of God. It is good for there to be room in the church for what I would call, what we would call genuine wrestling, right? And sincere struggling with matters of faith and life, trying to understand the Lord and his purposes. There's room for that. And we're concerned, I know, as a body of Christ here locally, that there would be room for that here. The next thing that, by way of a heading, the first heading was Heman was a man of faith. Another heading, just to give you some handles on the text, Heman's troubles were intense and lonely. Heman's troubles were intense and lonely. Put your eyes on verse 3. It's pretty strong language he uses here. For my soul is full of troubles. To the extent that he feels as if he's going to die, he says this, my, my life draws near to shield. My life nears the grave. I'm struggling that much. I'm accounted among those who are dead, essentially. I'm like a dead person. I've got no strength, he says. I'm like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those that you don't remember anymore, and like those who are cut off from your hand. And then these words that are poignant, and we'll consider these more in just a moment. He says of the Lord, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep, and your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all of your ways. We will consider God's purposes in that later. But this sounds very much like the language that Job speaks, where the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Shall we not receive good from the Lord and also evil from him? It only seems appropriate that we would. The Lord afflicts his people, and we will think about that together. Then moving on into verse 8, we see that the Lord has caused Heman's friends to abandon him. He is alone. You've caused my companions to shun me, and you've made me a horror or an abomination before them. We don't know exactly what the circumstances of this man were. It's not altogether impossible that he had some kind of sickness, maybe leprosy or something, that isolated him from the covenant community. That would not be absurd to think, but we don't know. 
And so he, for whatever reason, has become an abomination and a horror to those around him, and he is alone. He sees no way of escape. You see that in verse 8. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. God, I don't see a way out of this. And my eyes, they grow dim through sorrow. I have literally worn my eyes out through tears. And then we see in verse 16, as he just continues to kind of talk to us about the things that he's experiencing and feeling and perceiving. He talks about the wrath of God sweeping over him and your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. Continually, all day long, the assaults of God are around him. And he's like, I'm I'm going under. They're going to overtake me. I'm not going to make it. This is his predicament. They close in on me together. And then again in verse 18, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me and my companions have become darkness. That literally could be rendered darkness has become my only companion. You ever been there? I don't feel like I've got anyone. I feel utterly and completely alone. This is how this man felt. Things were bleak in this man's life. Another handle for you as we think about the words of the psalmist Heman's troubles were not only intense and lonely, they were also long-standing. Heman's troubles were long-standing. Put your eyes on verse 15. Again, just in this catalog of things that he is saying. As he's wrestling with the Lord's posture toward him, he says, afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. It seems that Heman has lived a hard and troubled life from a young age. We'll consider this more later too, but some people, some saints even, suffer tremendously. Why some people suffer as they do, we don't fully understand. There are factors, certainly we are responsible, we'll consider all these things in a moment, but why some people suffer the way they do, we do not know. And we see it in the pages of Scripture that there are people who suffer in what seems to be a disproportionate amount. Perhaps this man was one of them. He suffers and he feels helpless. His mind is troubled and it has been for a long time. This is no brief season of, well, I'm just kind of bummed out this week. This is really serious and it's long-standing. One more handle for us, just as we're thinking about the text. Heman wrestled with God's disposition toward him and whether he would ever be delivered. So he wrestled with both of those things, God's disposition toward him and whether or not he would ever be delivered from the predicament that he found himself in. You see there at the end of verse 8 that Heman feels as though he is shut in, walled in so that he cannot escape. He does not see a way out of what's going on. From his perspective, I'm trapped. I'm done. I don't know how this is going to end. I'm pleading with the Lord regularly. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, and I spread out my hands to you. But then these verses, verses 10 through 12, you see him pleading with the Lord. Like, if my circumstances don't change, I'm going to die, Lord. And if I die, do dead people praise you? Like, are you glorified in that? Does that make you look good? Do those who have departed and gone down to the grave grave give you praise? Right? 
Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Are your wonders, are they known there? Is your righteousness heralded there? He asks these questions. This sounds so much like the way Moses pleads with God in Exodus 33. You remember that encounter where God has told Moses that in his mercy, the people can have the promised land, but that he's not going to go with them. And Moses says, but Lord, if, if you don't go with us, what are the nations going to think? How will they know like that you are the Lord and that you are the great God and that you have done this for us if you don't go with us? Like your glory's at stake. That's how this man is pleading. Do, do the people in the grave praise you, God? Do they herald your love and your righteousness? But he's wrestling genuinely with his lot in life. He knows that the earth is the theater in which God displays his glory. But he is unsure of his place in that. He is unsure of God's posture toward him. Lord, are you going to deliver me? He again in verse 13 reiterates the fact that he is pleading with God regularly. But again, you see that he's unsure of how the Lord is in terms of the God's posture toward him. You see that in verse 14. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? I feel as though you are casting me away from you. Why do you hide your face from me? Your loving presence, your kind countenance. Why am I not seeing? You think of Aaron's blessing, right, from number six. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Heman was feeling the opposite of that. God's face is not toward me. His kind and loving countenance is not lifted up upon me. If anything, I feel as though he is casting me away and hiding his loving presence from me. I don't know what's going on. I'm wrestling and I'm struggling. Have you ever been there? I trust many in the room have. And so now as we consider the text further, I want to specifically give us six points of doctrine that are clearly in the psalm, things that flow out of it for us. And I'm going to number them one through six. I pray these things are useful for you and even helpful to me as we consider them together. So point of doctrine number one, affliction is normal and is ordained by God. Affliction is normal and is ordained by God. God ordains, just full stop, affliction and suffering. He sends trials. In doing so, in sending trials, he is never unjust. In sending trials, in causing and ordaining affliction, he never does wrong. And as we'll consider more in just a moment, his purposes in sending trials and suffering and affliction are always eternally and ultimately good. Scripture is quite clear. I know for some of us who grew up in maybe a different kind of church context, you heard a lot about the sweet things of God, you know, the, the love and the grace and the mercy and all those things. And those are awesome because he is that. And we hear a lot of good stuff about how he works things for good, which is true and awesome. And scripture is also very clear that not only does the Lord send blessing, 
he also brings ruin and destruction in terms of his sovereignty. Now, like I said last week, we could have all kinds of conversations about primary and secondary and tertiary agencies and all these kinds of things, the various means that the Lord uses. Those are fine conversations to have. But suffice it for now to say that the Lord not only blesses and does good to his people in an obvious way, he also brings ruin and destruction. Isaiah 45, 7, God says through the prophet, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Not sure what you do with that, other than to say the Lord does this. It's very straightforward. Deuteronomy 28, 63 Moses says, just like the Lord delighted in doing you good and multiplying you, the Lord will also delight in bringing ruin and destruction upon you for your sin. 1 Samuel 2, verses 6 and 7, Hannah's prayer. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He does both and everything in between. Deuteronomy 32, 39, we read that the Lord kills and makes alive. He wounds and he heals. So question, God is sovereign, right? No doubt about that. But question, real one, do we suffer in this life because of the work of Satan? Answer, yes. Exhibit A, we read this morning. Job chapter 1 and 2. Satan is the great enemy of God and God's people. He's the great accuser of the brethren. He roams about like a lion seeking those that he might devour. Those are true. He's the father of lies, Jesus calls him. He's the great deceiver. So he is at work in the world. And you already know where I'm going with this. God is sovereign over him. Satan, as Martin Luther famously said, is a servant of God. That seems like a twisted thing to say, but Satan is subservient to the Lord. We see that depicted in a kind of enjoyable way almost as we read the literature of Job 1 and 2, where Satan comes to God and says all these things about Job because God is saying, have you considered my servant Job and how he glorifies me? And Satan's like, yeah, but God... It's because you bless him. If you take his blessing away, he'll curse you. And the Lord says, fine, afflict him. But Satan can only do what the Lord allows him to do and no more. Satan is on a leash. He doesn't have free reign. He does, in that sense, the bidding of God to accomplish God's good purposes in Job, God's servant. Another question, legitimate one. Do we suffer and encounter despair? Are we depressed in this life because of our sin? Answer, yes. Our sin, and by that, I do mean our sin as a state and a condition, we'll consider that, but also our sins in action. We suffer as a result of things that we do. And at the same time, I would ask you to consider this. God, while we suffer the consequences of our sin, 
in measure. God is sovereign over that suffering. Let me explain what I mean. Sin has consequences. You know that. I know that. Some of those are very tangible. Some of those are more intangible. Mental, emotional, spiritual stuff, right? But think about your life. How often, I would, I would say it's this way all the time because nobody in this room has been damned to hell. You are spared and so am I from having to suffer the full weight of the consequences of your sin. You are spared from having to suffer the full weight of the consequences of your sin all the time. In every scenario. Well, who determines that? Who determines that? You don't. I don't. It would be God or no one that would determine that. Like, to what measure, to what degree will we suffer as a result of our sin in action? God is sovereign in those things. He has purposes in those things. So even as you are reaping what you sow, God is sovereign in that. And another thing that needs to be said is we think about the fact that God sends affliction and God sends and ordains trial and suffering. We must be careful biblically to not always draw straight lines from our sins that we commit to the suffering that we experience. Let me say that again. We must be careful biblically to not always draw straight lines. I didn't say never. I just said we must not always draw straight lines from the sins we commit to the suffering we experience. Just for your reference, John chapter 9, the man born blind. Jesus and his disciples encounter him, and the disciples ask Jesus a question. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. What caused it, Jesus? He says, neither. It was so that the purposes of God, the works of God might be displayed in him. It wasn't his sin or his parents' sin that caused this. God did this for his good purposes. Luke 13, very first few verses of that chapter, Luke 13, 1 through 5 or so. People bring to Jesus' attention some Galileans who were slaughtered by Pilate. Their blood was mingled with pagan sacrifices. And Jesus says, do you think that those Galileans were any worse than you? No, there weren't. Or, and then Jesus says, or the 18 people on whom the tower in Siloam fell, do you think that they were any worse than you because they suffered this way? No, they were not. So we have to be careful in always making those one-to-one -one correlations between sins committed and suffering experience. I hope some of this is useful to you in kind of chalking the field and setting some barriers and parameters on this conversation. Because of everything that we've just been considering, the fact that, that God ordains suffering and trial, he brings calamity, not just blessing, because he is sovereign over Satan and he is even sovereign in the ways that we suffer, the consequences of our sin, the language of the psalmist, Heman, about how God has afflicted him is not wrong. His language about how God has afflicted him is not wrong. Again, it sounds so similar to Job. Job, Job says God gave and he takes away. Job says we get good from God, we get evil from God. Not that God does evil, but we get evil, we get bad stuff from God. And the text in Job 2 says Job did not sin in saying that. 
That matters. So Heman is not sinning in what he's saying. Before we move on from this first point of doctrine that God ordains trial and suffering, that he afflicts his people, we must never forget. Part of being people of faith, part of trusting God, is fighting to believe God that he is always accomplishing good purposes through trial and through suffering. As our brother prayed this morning, when God sends things our way, as hard as they may seem to us, the thing itself is not pleasant. Trials themselves are not fun. This is why we're told to consider them, reckon them joy, when you, consider, when you encounter trials of various kinds in James 1. It's not that trials are joyful. But it's what trials produce that's good. It's the purposes of God through trials that's good. It's the purposes of God through the affliction that he ordains that are good. And we can trust him. That matters. That we would see that. We're going to continue to consider all of these things in various ways as we move forward. So that brings us to our second point of doctrine. Doctrine number two. Because of sin, and by that I mean sin as a state, we carry a weight around with us. Let me say that again. Because of sin, we, human beings, carry a weight, a burden around with us. We all do. You've heard it said many times, even in services in the last couple of years, sin is a state or a condition before it's ever an action. We are born into a state of sin, and we live in a state of sin all the time, and therefore we sin in action. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. But with the original sin of Adam and Eve, our first parents, all kinds of evil and ruin and disaster and misery were introduced into the world. There was no pain. There was no suffering. There was no affliction before sin came. Throughout church history, saints and confessions alike have written of the miseries of fallen man. They write about the miseries of fallen man in connection with that original sin. That because of sin, there are miseries that every human being must bear up under. And they are miseries of all kinds. Physical, emotional, mental, moral, spiritual. And they are real. We see this, you do, we see this in our own bodies. Talk about the misery of mankind. I mean, my goodness, looking out over a congregation of people, there are health and bodily issues aplenty. Where does that come from? It comes from this, the state of sin. We're pretty comfortable in the church to talk about that part, the physical breakdown piece, right? Oh, yeah, man, I'm getting old. Can't do what I used to. That kind of becomes a joke, and we banter about it because it doesn't make us uncomfortable to talk about physical struggle. But we are often very slow, painfully very slow, to admit the wreckage and the struggles that exist in our minds and hearts. The mental, emotional, spiritual stuff. We're much more hesitant to talk about that wreckage and that ruin. We have perhaps bought into the lie that those kinds of struggles, the physical, not the physical, but the mental, the emotional, the spiritual struggles, those kinds of struggles should not exist for the Christian, at least the good ones. We bought into that kind of thinking. 
right? Everybody's body will break down. You know, that's why we need the resurrection. But real faithful Christians shouldn't struggle mentally and emotionally and spiritually. We can think like that. Because of this reality of sin being a state that, hear me, this is why this matters. Sin is a state that we have not been fully delivered from yet. That's why this matters. We've been delivered from the power of sin. It no longer has dominion over us. But we have not been fully delivered from the presence of sin yet. It's still here. Because of this reality that sin is a state that we all live in, we should not be surprised when people struggle. We ought not be surprised when people struggle. Let me be very clear. This does not mean that we want to encourage each other to wallow in our despair. This does not mean that we want to cheer people on towards greater struggling. That's not what we're saying at all. That would be absolute lunacy. So that is not at all what I'm saying. I don't want to be misunderstood. This kind of expecting people to struggle in no way justifies sinful behavior. It in no way justifies sinful thinking. But it does, however, foster compassion and charity. It fosters understanding. It creates a community in which people can be real. People can live life together. And we can talk about the deep things of the faith and the deep wrestlings of our souls together as we strive to follow Jesus. That's what this does. This grounds us, this understanding. We're not surprised to see Christians, even faithful Christians with really good theology. We're not surprised to see those people suffer and struggle under the weight of sin. Which brings us to the third point of doctrine for our consideration today. Number three, <clears throat> affliction and suffering aren't distributed equally. Affliction and suffering are not distributed equally. So think of Heman's language in this song. Is anybody else wanting to call him He-Man, like Masters of the Universe? <laughs> Heman's language in this song is clear here, that from his youth up, in verse 15, afflicted and close to death, from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. Not only that, though, just all of his language about the depth of his despair and trouble. It's clear that this man is suffering in an acute way that maybe not everybody does. Some people, as I said earlier, are greatly afflicted. They live lives that are full of hardship after hardship after hardship. They suffer more than other people. We've known those people. We have some people in our midst this morning who have had harder circumstances than most of us. There is no doubt about it. Why that is the way it is, is not ours to know fully. That's God's prerogative. But what that does mean for us as a church, as a body of believers, is that we should never look down on our afflicted brothers and sisters. To use the kind of old school language, we should never despise the afflicted among us. We have a way... I'm not, nothing that I'm saying right now is an indictment against any individual or against even us as a congregation. But this is 
good for us to think about, right? So nobody's in the crosshairs here, just to disarm them. We have a way in the church in general of invalidating the struggles of other people around us. We can be so dismissive of them. We don't mean to be, I trust. I trust we mean well. But we can invalidate the struggles of others in various ways. We can have a posture that can come across like, well, you just need to trust God. Or a posture like, look, you need to quit feeling sorry for yourself and move on here. Or you need to bear up under this, suck it up, and let's move forward. Right? Not that we would say it in those terms. Maybe some of us are ashamed have. But we can have that kind of posture. There are no doubt, again, not to be misunderstood, there are no doubt times that people need to be exhorted and people need to be confronted. It is not okay to just sit and wallow in despair. And Sometimes you need a brother or sister in love to say, hey, like, you really do need to stop feeling sorry for yourself because this, this posture that you're in right now is not good for you. You know that and so do I. But it's done in compassion and love. It's done with understanding. It's done in humility. The longer that I've been a pastor, pastoring people, and the longer that I've been a Christian and reflected on my own life, the more I've come to know that there is always the possibility for an answer that you don't expect. There is always the possibility for an answer that you don't expect as to why someone is struggling the way that they are. There could be any number of reasons that a person is struggling or any number of reasons that a brother or sister is in the throes of despair. And mercy and compassion make room for those unexpected answers. Faith, the Christian faith, this is important that we would understand this. Faith in Christ is not an escape from suffering and affliction. Faith in Christ is not an escape from suffering and affliction. We are not in heaven yet. One day it will be over, but that day at least to our knowledge, is not today. It's not yet. It could be today, but not yet today. So right now, we will suffer and be afflicted. To think that faithfulness to Jesus produces ease or some kind of immunity from human problems is sorely misguided. And it's harmful thinking and theology. Many Christians are greatly tried. They experience wave after wave after wave of difficulty and affliction. Maybe you have had a life like that where you've just known struggle more than most people. Things just for whatever reason, they don't go your way. Like you don't ever get the breaks. Other people do, you don't. You don't understand. It. Your life has been hard and you're wrestling with what is God's posture towards me? It's important that you would know that none of your trials, none of them, or none of your suffering can ever prove that you are not a child of God. None of your trials and none of your suffering can ever prove that you are not a child of God. Christians battle despair. Christians battle depression and sadness. Again, consider the words of Heman, the words of the psalmist, the troubles and the affliction and the 
wrath that he feels, the depths of the darkness. I'm in the pit. I'm in regions dark and deep. I'm overwhelmed. I'm trapped. There that is. Um, And I don't see a way of escape. I'm not sure if my mic is on. I guess it's working. Um, And he doesn't see a way out. This man has known dark days. There are people, again, remember this man's post, next to Solomon, involved in the worship of the tabernacle, the temple in Solomon's era is being built. There are people whom God loves who are his without doubt, who don't have very many sunshiny days. Their hope is often dim. Their joy is often fleeting. These brothers and sisters hear me, are not less than. They're not. Are there things that can be talked about in their life and examined in their lives? Sure. But that's not the point of what we're saying right now. They are not less than because of their affliction. I myself, I've shared this with many of you. I myself struggle with anxiety in a way that can lead to much weariness and discouragement in my soul, right? So I would count myself amongst the number of people that would say that I have days that are hard, that are darker than I want them to be. I know that many in the room will resonate with those things. As Charles Spurgeon said, depression of spirit is no index of declining grace. It's important that we would know this too. The afflicted and the depressed among us, they may very well battle this despair and this melancholy for a long time. May battle depression for the rest of their days. We considered this some even in the Dealing with Darkness sermon series a year ago. Heman's words in verse 15 that he was afflicted and close to death from my youth up. He has known struggle for a long time, perhaps the majority of his life. Bear with me for just a few more minutes as we think about this. Sadly, in the church, church at large, voices of what might be called condemnation come at the depressed and the afflicted from every angle. That you should be better by now kind of posture is a real thing. That kind of don't you trust God sort of posture is a real thing. I'm going to use quotes from from other guys for just a minute so that you don't just hear me saying this. I'm going to quote some Spurgeon. I'm going to quote this man, Zach Eswine, who wrote this book. Charles Spurgeon would talk of the ungenerous suspicions that Christians have towards the sufferers of depression. He said that oftentimes it is assumed that depression must be a sign of a lack of faith or a poor attitude or cowardice. It's not necessarily those things. Zach Eswine writes, in terms of how other Christians can sometimes treat the despairing and the afflicted among us, to our face, they, other Christians, they coach us to rouse our courage. They shame us to expose our lies. Or maybe they quote the Bible in an attempt to stir our faith. They try to reason with us using logic to demonstrate and prove the absurdity of our fears. Choosing this tone of rebuke proves that they do not understand their fellow man or woman. It's a call to compassion. Again, Spurgeon, he says, death would be a welcomed relief by those whose depressed spirits make their existence feel like a living death. Are good men ever permitted to suffer thus? Indeed they are. 
and some of them are even all their lifetime subject to bondage. O Lord, be pleased to set free thy prisoners of hope. Let none of thy mourners imagine that a strange thing has happened unto him, but rather rejoice as he sees the footprints of brethren who have trodden this desert before. It's good stuff. We ought never to despise our afflicted brothers and sisters. We should never scoff at those among us who are trembling under a sense of even God's wrath because their lives are hard. Which brings us to the fourth point of doctrine. We are moving forward. That was by far the longest. I appreciate your patience. Number four, the battle of the Christian life is always a battle of faith. The battle of the Christian life is always a battle of faith. It's always a battle to believe God at the most fundamental level. To believe that what he says is true and right and good. Not what I feel. Not what I want. Not what I think. But what God says. Right? I believe him. That's the fight. God has proclaimed one thing for the, for the believer. God has proclaimed one thing. That we are his children through Christ. But we often feel something else. We often feel something different. That we are perhaps out of God's favor. Because our lives are this is our experience. This was the battle that the psalmist, Heman, was fighting. You see that so clearly in the passage. Like, Lord, you're the God of my salvation and I'm coming to you. I'm aiming to trust you. And my life is so hard. And I don't understand. So this is part of the reason why when we talk about growth and when we talk about sanctification with respect to depression, and despair, anxiety, things like that. We have to be thoughtful in how we approach that conversation. Because sometimes it can be framed as though the only possible good conclusion to the depression conversation is that, hey, look, we're going to get you out of this and we're going to get you to a place where you just have complete victory over this. And that's the only reasonable solution. That's the only appropriate outcome. Sometimes God does that. Let me be clear. Sometimes he does. But more often than not, victory and growth and sanctification look like something else. Victory is not uninterrupted happiness and joy for a person battling these things. Victory is not never being depressed again, never being in the depths of despair again. Victory may very well be the consistent taking of your despair to Jesus and Trusting him and placing your hope in him in the midst of your deepest and darkest depression. That's victory. That's growth. That's faith. And along with that, faith, trust, I'm going to keep taking it to the Lord. We would work and pray and strive to see increased levels of awareness of my struggles. How does this come upon me? Let me try to get upstream of this so that I can think better about it. And then also, by God's grace, I pray and I work and I talk so that I might respond in more mature ways to my depression or to my despair. For the sake of time, let's move on to the fifth point of doctrine. Doctrine number five. This is the sweet part, right? As we get to turn explicitly to Christ. Jesus was afflicted. Jesus was afflicted. 
If you are despairing today, if you're battling depression today, it is a wonderful thing to know that your Savior, the God-man, knows pain and suffering. That is not some light, trite, cliche thing to say. Jesus was afflicted so that we might be rescued. He was afflicted so that we might live forever with God. His affliction that, that he undertook was of the deepest and most severe kind. Like our afflictions on the one hand, this is not to minimize them, but on the one hand are nothing compared to the afflictions that Christ took upon himself. The wrath of God from men. And what's remarkable, about, remarkable excuse me, about Jesus is that he set aside and left the glories of heaven to take on human flesh and live in a wasteland for 33 years. He willingly was born under the law that he gave in order to redeem people. He willingly and joyfully fulfilled the law in the place of all of his people so that we might be redeemed. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. There's a reason we sung that today. He bore the awful load that is our sin. He took it completely upon himself and atoned for it, paid it in full, took the wrath of God in full, drained the cup to the dregs, right? So that you and I, if we turn from our sin and trust in Christ, would never have to experience that kind of affliction. It is Jesus who said in the Garden of Gethsemane that my soul is sorrowful even to death. He knew what it was like to suffer. Yes, he's truly God and he's truly human. And he says that. My soul is sorrowful even to death. I am so sorrowful, I think I might die. Sounds a lot like the language of Psalm 88, which is why, appropriately, many people look at these psalms of lament and see them pointing forward to the experiences of the Messiah. It's appropriate to see that, to look at this text and see the suffering and the anguish of soul that Jesus would go through for your salvation and mine. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He knew the agony of the soul. So if you're struggling today, Jesus knows your struggles and he knows your troubles. Who else would be better to go to than him? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, says Isaiah. Which brings us to number six. Not only was Jesus afflicted, but number six, it is Jesus who saves us. It is Jesus who saves us. So let me be clear. It is not the absence of depression or despair that saves us. Jesus saves us. Our feelings of Jesus don't save us. He saves us. Our hope does not lie then in our ability to be of good spirits. Our hope is in Christ and him alone. And he is the one who gently lays us on his shoulder and carries us home. We plead who? We plead Christ, not ourselves. His strength 
not our strength, not our merit or our righteousness, but his. We have sins and weaknesses aplenty, and there is more mercy in him than there is sin in us. And we rejoice in that reality. This is how in the midst of suffering, we can look to ultimate deliverance and know that it's coming with certainty because of Christ. And it's comforting to know that Jesus will never abandon us. Even when, and I would say perhaps especially when, we are downcast in our hearts. He is near to the brokenhearted. The presence of Christ, not the absence of misery or doubt or despair, is our hope. Right? As we sing sometimes here, we sung it recently the words of the Scottish hymn writer. My love is oft times low. My joy still ebbs and flows, but peace with him remains the same. No change, Jehovah knows. I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, right? The resting place. His truth, not mine, the time. We hope in Christ. And we will never be confounded, all of us who put our hope in him. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would help us in this battle for faith. We pray that you would give us eyes to see your good purposes, even in the midst of suffering and affliction. We pray that we would always bring our despair and our suffering and our struggling and our wrestling to Christ in faith. We do pray, God, that you would continue to work in us by your spirit, that you would grow us and make us more mature. We pray especially for those among us who struggle with despair or depression or anxiety, fear, loneliness. We pray for your comfort. We pray for your nearness. We pray for you to work especially in those dear saints and sustain faith. We pray for ourselves as a church that we would be a local body of believers where we lock arms together and are genuinely helpful, imperfectly but really helpful to each other in this walk of the Christian life. We need grace so that we could do that. We need your spirit to work in us to accomplish that. So we pray for that now. And we pray in Jesus' name.